A lot of us perhaps don't really think about what is literature, because literature just kind of exists with this capital L, you know, and we're, we're educated to believe that li literature is this thing, that's, that's this pure art. And I found this um, pretty great quote from Juno Diaz that he published in The New Yorker. Literature with a capital L was white, straight, and male. This white, straight, male default was of course not biased in any way by its white, straight maleness. No way! Race was the unfortunate condition of non-white people that had nothing to do with white people, and as such, was not a part of the universal of literature. And anyone that tried to introduce racial consciousness to the great white universal of literature would be seen as politicising the pure art and betraying the white universal, no race, ideal of true literature. So he kind of sums it up pretty well, I reckon. Um, and I think that, that you know, that's, that's part of, it's, it's woven in to literature. And as a writer of colour, you're, you're aware of that immediately, mm. whether, you know, you feel that as soon as you start to, to approach it. Mm. Mm. You feel on the outside, yeah. you know. Well, and, and certainly not just on the outside, but you bear this kind of mantle of representation. So, you know, you are representing immediately in a certain space all women, all Pacific Islanders, all working class, you know, I've, and I felt that. And I remember the very first year I, I began working at the University of Auckland, I was in the English department, and there was a somewhat jaded, as I realised later, um, Pākehā older male writer. And I'd gone quite naively up to him and said, you know, do you have any tips about getting published? And he said to me, oh, you're going to have no problem, you're young, brown and Polynesian, you're in at the moment. He goes, you know, what about me? <laughs> and I was so kind of surprised and shocked and disappointed. You know, I'd gone to a senior colleague kind of, you know, help out a kid here and um, he just read to me and dismissed me and I suddenly thought when I started reading you know um, bell hooks and her theories about centre margin politics and how you have this invisible centre and, and people of colour and their realities and their writings are, are positioned on the margin you know and she works to invert that and suddenly I thought wow this I was just going to say his name, thank God I didn't. And this person suddenly felt shunted out from the centre. He suddenly felt marginalised, which is weird because the society is geared to, to, you know, to his norm, to his norm. But, you know, also, you know, I recently went for um, a promotion in my department and a colleague had said to me, oh, you'll get it, you're brown and Polynesian. You're the right kind of brown. And this was from the only other brown woman that I worked with. So, you know, and I said, no, I'll get it because 
I'm published in over 80 anthologies. I've got three books. I've got my critical book in press. I've, you know, I've chaired and keynoted over 100 sessions. I've gone to over 100 festivals. I'll get it because of that, thank you. And she was like, oh, we don't have to flaunt it. You know, so I kind of like... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we were talking about there are white walls and there are brown walls. Mm. Do you want to read that poem? Which one? Um, you know I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, you were going to read Ode to the Life. Okay. Because oh, I thought it was a perfect example of taking a European form and indigenizing it, right? This is an exercise that you, you guys had to create an ode when you um, were part of the IIML. Yeah, right? so this is from my first book, and we were asked to write an ode. Old to the life. You wanna old? Okay, I give you. Hear my ode to the life. Here, the life is happy and perfect. Everybody's smile, everybody's laugh. Lots of food like pea soup, McDonald's, and sapasui. Even the dog, they fat. You hear me, Sunga? Even the dog. And all the Balangi, they very happy to us. They say, hey, Come over here to New Zealand. Come and live with us and eat the ice cream and watch TV too every day. Days of our lives, every, every day. Hope and Bo and Roman and Tony DeMira. <laughs> That's how I know my old to the life. And also Jesus, I not forget Jesus. He said to us, now you can do anything you like. Have the boyfriend, drink the beer, anything, even in front of your father. And never ever get the hiding. Just happy and laughing every time. <laughs> <laughs> So you can't even say that that's mimicking a form, right? That is indigenizing and really using a form to carry your own cultural voice. And I guess, you know, to return back to the, that white male literary canon, that norm, we were talking before of how we not only have to deal with that form outside mm. of ourselves, but also it's here. And we're constantly, mm asking, are we here because we're kind of ticking the brown box? Are we here because we're ticking the woman box? Are we, you, you know, mm. though, that constant barrage? Which is why I really love Selena's list of statistics, you know. Um, and I actually went off and looked at my own CV and counted them up. Don't have as many as you. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, yeah, mm. 40 international, um, festivals, 57 uh, publications and journals, five books, another chapbook coming out. So when I hear this voice in my head, and do not, do not doubt, I hear it all the time. I have to bring out those figures <coughs> and remind myself. In fact, 
some of you may have been at the gala event on Friday night, um, and because I um, get incredibly anxious before these um, performances, no one knows that about me. I'm like Zen face, you know, everyone thinks I'm the queen of calm. It's not true. So I was in my, my um, hotel room, oh, you know, practicing and practicing and practicing and practicing and thinking to myself, oh, this poem, it's so chanty. Is it, that's like, brown people don't do that, don't they? They like chant stuff. <laughs> so it's not, if it's like chanty and it's like kind of like indigenous and brown, that's not really a real poem, is it? Like it's not really a real. You know, it's not a real literary poem, is it? And then I had to go, fuck, stop it, you know, and recognise, oh, there goes the white male critic in my head. Stop it, you know. And for the white male um, and the audience, and I think nearly all of them are related to me here, um, <laughs> do understand, you know, we're talking about not, you know, like, some of my best friends are white males, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and some of my cousins and uncles are white males. <laughs> so, um, don't, you know, we're not persecuting. We're talking about, you know, we're talking about the Systematic, the Yeah, we're talking about the systematic, institutionalised thing. Mm. And, and the you know, the voices in our heads as well. Mm. And I was having a really interesting conversation with a um, really lovely, although I've always been a little bit intimidated by him, and I won't tell you his name, white male writer last night. And as we got into talking, um, you know, he talked about how, how difficult he writes, he finds the aftermath of writing and talking about writing and the self-loathing that he experiences. He's a really thought, established writer. Yeah, like, mm. and I thought, oh, you know, and it made me feel like, okay, we all suffer from this. We all suffer from this, all of us, you know. But we have our own special extra, extra <laughs> demons <laughs> as well, you know, the am I just ticking the brown box. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say to you, Selena, like, when did you feel, or when did you know that you were no longer ticking the brown box, mm. that you were rocking it in the mainstream? Mm. Mm. And I, well, because we were talking <coughs> about, yeah, was there a point? And I thought, and initially there always is a point, but then you need those ongoing points of affirmation and validation. And then you have to balance it off with, uh, it's about here, not what's, with the reception outside there. Mm. But it really had to be, you know, with the, um, with AUP's acceptance of the first book, Fast Talking PI, and my absolute trust in my editor, who I don't think she'd mind me describing her as bulldogish. She is a tough, petite little thing, but she, she um, I absolutely trusted that she wouldn't publish rubbish. Mm. And so, you know, al always getting that first book published as kind of a public stamp of approval. Um, but, but recently, we were, are we going to yeah, talk recently? Yeah, we, we have to, I just, sorry, but I just have to steer you to the Queen. <laughs> 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 
But, but recently, yeah, yeah, recently I was sitting on the um, top of a London double-deck bus heading um, towards an event leading up to um, when I had the honour and privilege of performing for Her Majesty um, the Queen at Westminster Abbey. But I was sitting on the bus and I was in my cultural dress and I had these spikes sticking out of my hair and I was sitting there feeling absolutely in the centre. I wasn't on the margin and I wasn't mind reading people around me thinking, she is weird. You know, I was absolutely in the centre and it was a moment of value and worth and I was sitting there thinking, why don't, why don't I feel this all the time? Why is it just because I'm here in London? Because you, know? um, you were going to see the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> And perform for the royal family. Yeah, and, that, and that was another <coughs> huge stamp of approval. Mm. So um, the Commonwealth Education Foundation had commissioned me to write and perform a poem um, for Commonwealth Observance Day, which is the Queen's gig. It's held every second Tuesday of every March for the last 53 years, and Her Majesty has attended 53 of them. This would have been her 53rd. And... Um, the Commonwealth Foundation said, you know, we, we, would, we would like to invite you um, to do this piece of work. It will have to be censored by the palace, of course. And there are a few other kind of parameters around the poem. And I said, well, what are they? And they said, well, you'll have four months to compose. I said, that's fine. And then they said it had to be under three minutes. And I said, that's fine. <clears throat> they said it had to be called Unity. And I went, fine. They said it had to represent 53 nations in the Commonwealth um, in a discussion about unity to Her Majesty. And I went, okay. And then they said it wasn't allowed to be political. <laughs> I went, oh God. And that it also had to appeal to over a thousand school children from across the UK, dignitaries, heads of states, and the royal family. I went, easy. <laughs> and then I got writer's block for two months. November, December, I had a lot of false starts. It, they were very earnest false starts. And I just thought, I don't know where my voice has gone. With the weight of this kind of representation, mm. um, you know, performing in Westminster Abbey on the Sacrarium steps with Her Majesty like there, and Kofi Annan there, and the royal family there, and you know, the, the, the kind of, um, the weight of the occasion kind of took my voice away. And then second week of January, I go to the kitchen table, I get out a big piece of paper, and I, in vivid, which I, for some reason vivid gets me going, black vivid marker, I write unity in the middle of the paper and do a, a, draw a big circle around it, and I just look at it and it comes to me. There's a you and an I in unity. Costs the earth and yet it's free. And those two lines came out and they appear later on in the poem and I thought, that's it in a nutshell. That's it for the seven-year-old and that's it for the Duke of Edinburgh, 97, no, 93. <laughs> right, that's it. And that's my politics as well. You're read so I'm going to read it now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to perform it now. I'd have to stand. Have to stand. Okay. So just pretend you're the royal family. 
<laughs> you can you can decide on your um, royalty of preference. Well, you know, and I was wearing a blue pulatasi, which is a Samoa beautiful Samoan outfit with a blue shawl, and uh, the queen was in her blue. And later on, people came up to me and said, "Oh, darling, how politic of you to wear the queen's blue." And I said, "Well, it's the blue of Timuana Nui Akiwa, where I come from. It's the blue of the Pacific Ocean." Thank you. <laughs> unity. Let's talk about unity. Here in London's Westminster Abbey, did you know there's a London in Kiribati, Ocean Island, South Pacific Sea? We're connected by currents of humanity, alliances, allegiances, histories. For the salt in the sea, like the salt in our blood, like the dust in our bones, our final return to mud means though 53 flags fly for our countries, they're stitched from the fabric of our unity. It's called the Va in Samoan philosophy. What you do affects me. What we do affects the land, sea, wildlife, take the honeybee, nature's model of unity, pollinating from flower to seed, bees thrive in hives, keeping their queen. <laughs> she looks up, I look. <laughs> unity keeps them alive, keeps them buzzing. They're key to our fruit and veggie supplies, but parasitic attacks and pesticides threaten the bee, then you, then me. It's all connected. That's unity. There's a you and an I in unity. Costs the earth and yet it's free. My granddad's from Tuvalu. And to be specific, it's plop bang in the middle of the South Pacific, the smallest of our 53 Commonwealth nations, the largest in terms of reading vast constellations. My ancestors were guided by sky and sea trails and way before Columbus even hoisted his sails. What we do now matters to those who go before. We face the future with our backs, sailing shore to shore. For we're earning and saving for a common wealth. A common strong body, a common good health means saving the ocean and saving the bee means London's UK, seeing London in the South Seas and sharing our thoughts over a cup of tea. There's a you and an I in unity, costs the earth and yet it's free. Thank you. Can I tell my story? Um, I've got to say, when she was performing in London, I felt ridiculously proud. You know, almost as if it was me, you know. <laughs> yeah, really, um, really represented, you know. Um, so we kind of thought about 
um, people are often interested in creative process, you know. Um, and I think that our, both our parents, sets of parents were quite prophetic in, that, in the names that they chose for us. Mm. So Tusitala, Selena Tusitala Marsh, Tusitala in Samoan means teller of tales. Tusiata means artist. And, um, you know, we have two quite different kind of creative processes. Mm. And when we were talking the other day, um, you know, we, we were talking about how, for me, um, it's about image. It's about what I see in my head and the visions, actually, that I have. And the, the dreams, a lot of my poems come from my night dreams. And um, this feeling that I, when I'm really on it, this feeling that I get um, when I'm writing and performing of, of channeling, actually. Um, and for you, it's quite different. So, mm. so you know, Tusiata, artist, image. But let's you, go with that because right. in Faleaiku, you were saying mm. how many mm. poems came directly from dreams? And we're talking about producing the raw material for a poem, right? You were saying mm. how many? Yeah, someone asked me, you, you know, about that thing, about dreams. Um, and I think it was the book before Faleaiku I, I went through and I counted them up and half the book have come from dreams. Um, although I hasten to add, it's, it's, you know, like scribbling down the dream, but then crafting it, mm. you know. Um, scribbling down the dream is, is the first part, mm. but, then, but then the craft needs to kick in. And so that. you've actually written a poem called Poetry Manifesto. Would you yeah, like to so read that? All right, so <clears throat> I'm just going to read you the first and last half. Uh, because an ex-boyfriend appears in the middle. He's not here, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to leave him out. Um, but but mm. that ex-boyfriend was male <laughs> <laughs> and Pākehā. Yeah. And, and wrote an academic article about my poetry. Um, but anyway, if you want the whole story... <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards, or you can, you know, <laughs> okay. write a book. All right, so, but I'm going to read you the first half, uh, the first third and the, the final third. Poetry Manifesto. When I am 10, if a question is asked in class, some kind of answer appears inside me, but, inside me, but my stomach and heart buckle and twist like twin incubi. If I answer the question, the upward rush of leaving the body, I have to be almost certain I have the right answer. When I don't answer, the possession continues until the vertigo wanes. I don't ask, answer questions very often. A few decades later, in a master's class, I pray not to be asked questions. I can answer if I really have to, but not as well as you. Mm. Not without a dictionary to make me sound like someone else. Okay, so I can talk about poetry, but I can only use ordinary words like good and fruit bat. 
and then I'll miss the ex-boyfriend that... I can talk about poetry better than I could when I was 10 and better than I could as a student, but I can't talk about it as good as you can, brainy academic ex-boyfriend slash white male critic in my head. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I'll tell you how I imagine it. Will that do? I imagine poetry as a supernatural force. Sometimes I can contact spirits like a channeler, but not a very good one. Once or twice I've been able to do it word for word. Most of the time I just get a glimmer, like a bit of silver lame projected into the air above my head. But often it's just a picture on the front basin of my skull. I can write poetry, but don't ask me to talk about it. Mm. <clears throat> can I just ask you, you said before that this collection feels like your most kind of mature work to date. Mm. Is that because you're trusting more on your instinctive, instinctual kind of processes? That you're, or have you always done that? And you, is it just yeah, because of yes its germination no. has been longer? Yeah, it's been, it took, you know. I'm doing a gig a bit later on in Auckland, and um, the, yeah, the first sentence says something like, Tu Seata Avia took seven years to write this book. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> Shame. Um, but, yeah, it did take me seven years to write the book, but I had a baby and, um, you know, and became a solo mum, and um, that took up quite a lot of time, actually, and left me very little space in my life or in my head for writing. But over that seven years, I wrote, I don't know, maybe like 150 poems or so, and that became Whareaitu Spirit House. Um, so, you know, it, it was the best of, of what I wrote. And I think, um, yeah, why, why does it feel like my most kind of mature work? Maybe because I'm old? I don't know. It's like good wine. It's like good wine. It's funny because the first part of the book, you know, um, it's, in, it's in three parts. And the first part of the book, um, deals with my family and, you know, I have to, I, I thank my mother at the, at the back of the book um, and because when the book was coming out I said to her, look mum, um, I've written this book and there's a lot of stuff about the family and the front of the book um, and you don't come out looking that great. And I didn't do it on purpose, it's just that I wrote 150 poems and then I had to pick the best ones and it just happened that the best ones, you just don't come out looking that great. <laughs> and she said, my mum is 82 and sitting in the audience and she went, it all has to come out, mm. you know? And, you know, like I feel thankful that I have um, a mother who, is willing for me to put the blood and guts of, mm. you know, 
um, my often difficult upbringing, not every moment was difficult, there was lots of joy, but I put the blood and guts in here, you know, in, in the first part of the book. And um, my dad will never read it, so that's all right. But you know what, he would, I know that he would be proud of it too. But um, can I just jump in and say, yes, blood and guts, but poetically worked so that it's not just your story, it yeah. becomes every person's story. And my most favourite poem in that book is, um, this is a photo of okay. my house. And I use house. it as an example because I deal, like I teach in the Creative Master, uh, the Masters, of, Masters of Creative Writing program and I get um, these poets who are so full, full full of emotion and angst, and it's good, it's good stuff, it's the engine to drive your voice, and then you've got to work it, so that, you know, we, it gets pulled away from the sentimental and the cliche, and you offer someone a new reading experience, and for me, this poem totally does that. Okay. This is a photo of my house. It has pink bricks and a big tree. This is the driveway. You can lie on it in the summer. It keeps you warm if you are wet. This is the screen door swallow. Front green door, hold your chest. The carpet is dark grey and hurts your knees. It doesn't show any blood. Here are the walls. Be careful of the small girl in the corner. Here is the door into the hall. Be careful of that too. Here is the line where the carpet stops and the kitchen starts. That is a different country. If you are in the kitchen, you are safe. If you are in the lounge on your knees, you are not. Watch out for the corners. She isn't going anywhere. There is the piano. There is the ghost. Here is the hall. It is very dark. Here is the bedroom. Here is the other bedroom. Babies come from fear. Here is the last bedroom. It is very cold. There is a trap door in the wardrobe. It goes down under the floor. You can hide if there is a flood or a tornado. There is the bath. The auntie punched the uncle in the face till he bled. They lived in the small room, the cold one. That was before I was born. Here is the lounge again. Here is the phone, ring the police, ring the police. Here is the couch, it is brown. Watch out for the man, he is dangerous. Here is the beginning of the lino in the kitchen again. Here is the woman. Watch out for the girl in the corner, she is always here. There is the woman, she just watches and then she forgets. I am cutting a big hole in the roof. Look down through the roof. There is the top of the man. You can't see his face, but see his arm. See it moving fast. I am removing the outside wall of the bedroom. Look inside. There are the spirits. That's where they live. Stand outside in the dark and watch the rays come out through the holes. Those are the people's feelings. Mm.
And we were, so we were talking about Tusiata, artist, visual, imagistic, you know, um, um, the, the, the image and the sound and the colour. And my process is as Tusitala, I have to sound out the poem. That's how I edit, and I have to sing it. And you know, and my, my sources of inspiration, Pam Ears and Dr. Seuss and Sam Hunt and all the, all the poets that make the poem come off the page and onto the stage, and we're always gri grappling with that, right? Mm -hmm. Especially with sound poets who, whose work needs to then work on the page. Do you want to do us? Do I'll do, do yes. Yeah, so, so, and I'm always experimenting, and I'm, I'm in wonderment oh, yeah. about language, the power of language and the power of repetition and rhythm. And um, so this poem came out. Um, my second collection, Dark Sparring, is all about dealing with, you know, helping to deal with my mother passing away from breast cancer and taking up Muay Thai kickboxing and getting that grief and mourning and joy through my body. Right? And also doing that with learning the Tuvalu dance, a particular Tuvaluan dance, which is rhythmic and repetitious as well. Okay. So this is called Eviction Notice 113. We used to live at 113 Blockhouse Bay Road. It was my family home, and I, had, I, I was privileged enough to kind of live there from one to when I left and got married and, and for my own home. And it was known, it was the original villa in Avondale in the area, the farm villa. And it used to be also the party house. <clears throat> Her house used to be the party. 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 The house has become her body. 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 Body party, 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 body party. The house has become her body. The house has become the party. The house has become, 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 become mum. The house has become, 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 become mum. Become, 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 become. The house has become a body apart. Mum has become a body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Mum has become a body apart. Her body's become a body apart. The house has become a body apart. Her house has become, 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 become. Her house has become her body apart. Ours has become her body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Body part, body part, body part, body part, body depart, body depart, body depart, depart. Her house has become ours. The house has become ours. Her house has become ours. The house has become ours. Her house has become a body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Ours has become a body apart. Body party, body party, body party, body party.
the first time I've heard that, and I'm biting the inside of my mouth so I don't cry. Um, when I was um, on the way here, I, I read Selena's first book and second book, first book on the plane, um, Fast Talking PI, and it just struck me again, I, because I often don't read poetry books from cover to cover, I, I, you know, I pick. But reading that book from cover to cover and, and dark sparring, it just struck me again, the, the kindness, you know, the, the deep kindness, the inclusivity, um, the, the politics, the respect for the women writers and the women writers of colour that have gone before us, and, and the crossroads of the, of the creative and the academic. And no wonder you won all those prizes. It's such a bloody good book, you know. Um, Bit of a love feast, isn't it? <laughs> but I just kind of wanted to, to, to just kind of take one of those things, because I'm watching the time and, and we're nearly up, and um, one of the things that both Selena and I um, are often accused of is being too nice. And um, people, believe it or not, <laughs> yeah. I mean, people don't. People that don't know us, you know, they see these kind of Amazonian creatures, you know, up on the stage, you know, <laughs> and and sometimes they think we're scary. Um, or completely, you know, like self-possessed. <clears throat> but people who know us, um, often people who don't, don't know us that well, but often mm. accuse us of being too nice. Mm. And, um, you know, I think we've kind of been talking about, but we are nice. We are nice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, we are nice, we're kind. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. we're kind, yeah. we're gentle. We, and we're, we're good people. We might embody the goddess on the stage, but we're kind mm. people. Yeah. And that doesn't always, that is not an easy way to be in the cut and thrust of mm. the literary and the academic worlds. Yeah. Absolutely. Know. I mean, my colleague accused me in front of all these students because I did something for another competing institution for the sake of bringing in more Pacifica writers. And, and she accused me of being too nice and a traitor. <laughs> and, um, and I said, you know what? I'm a bridge, not a gate. And there are more Pacifica writers out there than either of our programs can handle, all right? So it, it just, and I was really glad that I found, finally found the language because um, oftentimes I'd be kind of shocked into kind of like, oh, did she just say that about me? But you, you, can, you can be a nice bridge. You can be a nice bridge, <laughs> you know. You can be a nice bridge. And, and I think, you know, in the worlds that we live in, in the worlds, or just in that world, but in the worlds of literature and in the worlds of academia, you know, in the, the whole competitive kind of thing, you can, be, you can be seduced into thinking that you have to be a certain way, you have Absolutely. to have a suit of armour, you have to have the words right there. I never had the words right there. I know, like, I, know I look like I do, but I don't. Yeah. People say things to me and yeah. I'm like this. <laughs> and then I'm driving home thinking, oh, shit, I should have said this and I should have said that, you know. Yeah. Well, and well, there was one, there's a renowned Pacific academic who called me, and he was kind of joking, but not. So when it was announced I was the 
doing the poem for the Queen, he said, he, whisper, he leaned over and said, sell out. And I was, I was so shocked and I just kind of wanted to punch his face. <laughs> but I didn't have the words. Mm. Like, I've come up with the words now in a really good poem but, you, <laughs> but hopefully one day he'll, he'll, he'll read. And I was really upset and I just said to my other colleague, I said, so-and-so just said this and I felt really terrible. And she completely dismissed and said, oh, jealous. And she didn't even pay it any attention but it just kind of like, oh, mm. you know. So I think, you know, I'm just, you said that, this is a little bit off, off the thing. Poetry is revenge, right? Okay. You know, poetry is revenge. I think, yeah, I think I said in, in our performance last night, you know, you don't want to get out of a relationship with a poet. You know? Um, <laughs> well, actually, um, my and also, <laughs> you know, like, I've just got to air this little bitterness um, from a long time ago. But you know, the manager of the Unity bookstore, who accused me twice in a six-week period of shoplifting from the Unity bookstore in Wellington, has a poem in my second book. <laughs> I hope she reads it. You know. Actually, and so. that poem is called Unity. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really good wrap-up. It is. It is. It is. So we um, might want to open it up to questions now. Yeah. Should we do that? Yeah. Okay. We were going to plant questions. I was going, I said to Tusiata, I did this in one class, and I put the same question under everybody's chair yeah. in the lecture theatre. And um, we were going to do the we same thing, it. and it was, it was going to read, um, Why Are You So Gorgeous? Yeah. <laughs> so if you can't think of anything, there's always that. Why are you so gorgeous? Because <laughs> we're nice. <laughs> and we're kind. We're kind. And we're kind. There's a question. pull it out a little bit. Um, so I'm giving a keynote, um, oh, I'm, I'm working on the New Zealand book lecture um, that I'm going to give in November, that I'm going to deliver in November. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's going to be called um, Tusi Tala, Tala Tusi. And Albert went once said in the 70s that the teller is the tale, mm. that the teller is the tale. And that's been part of my process. And that's how I broke through the, the, the writer's block for the unity poem for the Queen. Because I was trying to tell everyone else's story. I thought, begin again mm -hmm. with me and my grandfather and the, the original Tusitala. And, 
and weave it in and stay authentic to that space. So, you know, in terms of how I'm a Samoan, it's quite different from how my cousins who speak fluent Samoan are Samoan. And when my mother uh, moved to New Zealand, she broke away from the church. Her, her, her father was a whaiwhiao. But she broke away from the hypocrisy. She didn't understand why we had to be poor so the, the ministers could be rich. And so we, didn't, we weren't part of the Samoan church community here. And that actually meant that we weren't part of a lot of the cultural protocols. And it took a long time for me to actually honour my Samoanness, the way that I am, which is different from my cousins. And one of the great things about Tusiata and I sharing the stage is that we're both Afakasi Samoan, very differently, writing very different stories. So kind of the short answer to that is to stay true to exactly who you are, because that's, mm -hmm. that's who the world needs to hear and not some kind of some projected version of that identity. And I've, I've, the only difficulty I encountered was when I graduated with my PhD, big celebration at, at um, Māori Studies, and an older Samoan male came up to me speaking fluent Samoan, and I apologised in broken uh, Samoan for not being fluent, and he said, you should be ashamed of yourself, and walked away. And I was like, still, right, from our own. And then later I had the words and I got angry and I thought, you're saying that I should be ashamed of my mother who moved here and sacrificed and worked and brought over the fat, you know. So later on I found my articulation, but I will never let someone make me feel that way again. You want to respond? Well, I might, but I'll write a poem about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that pretty much brings us to the end. And I think it ends on a really nice note of, you know, our art is about, you know, permission to be who we are, who we really are, all of who we are, taking mm. it all in. Mm. And, and that's where the art has to come from, yep. you know. Yep. Um, do we have time for a final? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've Shall got... I? Yeah. Okay. So... Um, just on that note, Selena was asking me before, you know, what poem makes you feel, you know, like in your power, I suppose. And at the moment, it's um, the My Body Is Not An Apology poem. But there's a nice lady here that said to me, are you going to read the same poems that you read the other day? And I said, no, I'm not. So I'm not going to read that and poem again. she said, good, again, I'll come. Again, because... <laughs> Because I want to give her value for money. So, um, so I'm going to read another one from um, my first book. And I have to stand up for this. Mm. <clears throat> Wild dogs under my skirt. I want to tattoo my legs. Not blue or green, but black. I want to sit opposite the tofunga and know he means me, pain. I want him to bring out his chisel and his hammer and strike my thighs, the whole circumference of them, like walking right 
round the world, like paddling across the whole Pacific in a log, knowing that once you've pushed off, loaded the dogs on board, there's no turning back now, bingo. I want my legs as sharp as dog's teeth. Wild dogs, wild Samoan dogs, the mangy kind that bite strangers. I want my legs like octopus, black octopus that catch rats and eat them. Oh, baby's scared of the octopus. <laughs> I even want my legs like centipedes the black ones that sting and swell for weeks. And when it's done, I want the tufunga to sit back and know they're not his. They never were. I want to frighten my lovers. Let them sit across from me and whistle through their teeth. everyone for coming along today um, that brings us to the end of our session um, there's a book signing table out the back I know I sound like I'm pushing it they do tell us that we have to say this um, but yeah you won't be allowed out of the building before you know thank you so much thank for coming you. thank you